This is the In Focus podcast from The Hindu. Hello and welcome to the In Focus podcast from The Hindu. I'm Ramya Kannan, your host for today. Among the key voices of the World Health Organization, Dr. Saumya Swaminathan, with her clarity of thought, articulation and deep awareness of the Indian context, has emerged as a reliable voice amid the COVID-19 pandemic maelstrom. In an online interview, she provides detailed responses to a range of topics that are simmering, resolves some doubts and advocates strategies to adopt gainfully. Investments in healthcare are crucial, she says, because it is now clear that there is nothing without health and without sufficient physical and mental well-being, it would be impossible to take the path to recovery. A current topic of concern for a lot of people is the question of virus mutation the variance of concern and the variance of interest can you tell us what it is that we actually need to know about this in as much as it impacts our lives and what are these variants categorized on the basis of the variants are basically the virus mutating or evolving and so there are changes in the viral genome and this is normal it's expected for rna viruses as they multiply every time the virus replicates it has brings about a small change it's an error basically that happens most of them are of no importance they don't affect the virus in any way some of them could have some impact on how the virus is able to uh, spread some may make it easier and some may make it more difficult for the virus and this is because of the changes in particular areas like the spike protein which is the protein of the virus that helps it to come and attach itself to the human cells sometimes those changes or mutations make it more easy for the virus to attach itself to the respiratory tract cells and so it's easier then for it to infect and then it it also helps it to multiply faster and create a higher viral load in the respiratory tract so the variants of interest are those where there are some observations that the variant may be behaving a little bit differently so that's usually the initial observation by the epidemiologist of that place which suggests that a certain variant with some specific mutations is behaving differently and then as more research is done and more data is accumulated we decide whether that's a variant of concern or not and to classify it as a variant of concern it needs to fulfill certain it has to have certain properties it has to be either shown to be more transmissible than the original strain uh, which is called the wuhan strain or the d614 strain it has to show clinical more clinical severity in patients who get infected or it has to uh show resistance to antibodies either from people who've had previous infection 
or from uh, people who've received the vaccine. So a strain that fulfills one or more of those criteria is called a variant of concern. And so far, WHO has four variants of concern, the latest being the B1.617, first described in India, but now found in about 50 countries worldwide. I think for the public, what is important is that it doesn't really matter. The variant of the virus is still the same virus and it's still behaving in the same way and having the same effects on people. A particular variant may be more transmissible, which is what we're seeing in India today, that it spreads much more easily, but you have to give it the opportunity to spread. So I think if people can remember that they have to do the same things, they have to wear a mask, they have to avoid crowds, they have to preferably avoid meeting people in indoor settings, especially with poor ventilation, and maintain a physical distance as far as possible and maintain basic hygiene, you know, of cough hygiene, not going out if you're sick and making sure that you get tested and then you isolate yourself if you're infected. So the principles of public health and of personal protection have not changed at all. They are the same. So it really doesn't matter whether it's one variant or another. We need to do the same things, especially when the community transmission is happening at such a high rate. There seems to be signs that B1.617 is highly transmissible. But is there really any data on resistance and virulence yet? Yes. So for the B1.617, I think what we know so far is that it's definitely more transmissible. One and a half to two times more transmissible than the uh, original strain. And in fact, it looks at that it's even more transmissible than the B117, which came from the UK or which was identified in the UK and which had at one point become the predominant strain in India. But it's now being replaced by the B1617 that shows that this is even more transmissible. Now, there are sub-lineages that have been described. The 617 itself has been divided into 0.1, 0.2, And each of them has a slightly different set of mutations with uh, slightly different properties. We are looking for more results coming. So at the moment, I haven't seen any data that it causes a more severe disease. There is some preliminary data that it has lower neutralizing antibody uh, activity. I mean, that it, that it is able to, um, not able to overcome the, what's I'm looking for the correct expression, that the neutralizing antibody responses against this variant from people who've recovered from previous infection or from people who've been vaccinated by Covishield and Covaxin is less. It's about two to four fold less. Now that's a lab study. What we don't have is data from the real world as to whether there is a higher chance of getting infected or of getting seriously ill with the new variant after vaccination with either Covishield or Covaxin or for that matter, any of the other vaccines. So there's really an urgent need for us to do more comprehensive research studies, which go hand in hand with the sequencing. So the sequencing alone is not going to give us the information we want. 
along with the sequencing, you need the data on the clinical profile of patients. You need data on epidemiology and transmission. And we need data on people who've received the vaccine and have been followed up for a period of time to see about, look at the breakthrough infections. What is the rate of breakthrough infections? What is the pattern of breakthrough infections? We expect breakthrough infections, so it's not a surprise, but we need to see what rate at which it is occurring and are people really getting ill or are people getting mild infections after vaccination? So that is really going to give us the information we need about this variant that is going to be important for us to plan ahead. So what you're saying is that the message is to go ahead and get vaccinated with the vaccines that are available now. Absolutely. So as per our current knowledge, the vaccines that are available in India are still highly effective against the new strain. And even if people get infected, because I think the question is, everybody knows somebody who's had two doses of the vaccine and who's got infected. And some of them may have also been hospitalized. So there is no doubt that such cases will occur because none of the vaccines are 100% uh, protective. But the vast majority of people who receive two doses will be protected against severe disease, which leads to you know, admission in the ICU. Um, and so that is why we need the data at the population level. And the anecdotal evidences are not good enough for us to say that um, you know, vaccines are not working. At this point, we firmly believe that the vaccines still are providing a good amount of protection to people. Do you have concerns about the pace of vaccination across the world and uh, also in India? Well, what we see is um, big differences between countries. We see some countries where 40 or 50 percent of the population has now been protected with two doses of the vaccine. And we start seeing the, the very beneficial impact that it's having on their population in terms of the reduction in infection rates, in terms of uh, dramatic reduction in hospitalizations and deaths, and the fact that they are now able to open up and allow people back to some degree of normalcy. But this is only in a couple of countries. In the vast majority of the world, vaccination coverage is still very, very low. And in fact, in many countries, they have not yet vaccinated even the healthcare workers and the older people who are the most vulnerable. So in such countries, there is a huge risk that future waves will continue to occur, will continue to devastate the population, both in terms of health and lives, but also in terms of the economy. So economic recovery is also going to be linked up with um, the speed at which people are able to get vaccinated. So at the moment, we're in a, living in a situation of uh, constrained supplies, limited supplies, where we have to prioritize who gets the vaccines first. When we get to a point where there's enough vaccine available, then of course, we should ramp up to vaccinate everyone as quickly as possible. But at this stage, I think it's really important to think about targeting those who should be prioritized, uh, both in terms of saving lives and in terms of protecting the health system. 
you spoke of future waves is it even possible to have a prediction about how long covid-19 is going to last and how many waves are to follow what we were at the stage of the pandemic where um, it's still a very acute and a very difficult phase of the pandemic and so we have to focus on how we get through the next 6 to 12 months which could be the most difficult and then really talk about you know the longer term plan on whether it's going to be elimination or control it a lot depends also on um, the evolution of the virus itself you know the the ability of vaccines to keep up uh, with variants and it also depends on the duration of protective immunity of vaccines so a lot of this is changing you know the the knowledge for example we know now that um, you know vaccine induced immunity and immunity from natural infection lasts for at least 8 months because that's the longest follow up that we have so time as time goes on we get more and more data but it seems to be quite encouraging that vaccine induced immunity lasts and we know from other coronaviruses from the mers coronavirus for example that cell mediated immunity uh, was present even after 6 years of somebody getting the mers infection of course the sars cov2 virus is different so we need to understand it better so at this point i think it's uh, it's hard to predict the long term we know that there will be definitely uh, an end to the acute phase of the pandemic when we have vaccinated let's say about 30% of the world's population which is what we would like to see by the end of 2021 that would be the goal for covax for who is that 30% of people everywhere in every country are vaccinated and if we can do that then we can really start seeing Uh, quite a significant reduction in the deaths due to this uh, infection and then 2022 can be really ramping up vaccination to cover 60 70 80% we still don't know what the herd immunity level that's going to be needed you know for this so till the end of 22 i would think that we would be spending our time in ramping up that vaccination coverage and that hopefully should then see the virus return to a to um uh, um maybe just like another viral infection you know like influenza which you t- take certain precautions but it's it's there it you know comes seasonally and uh, you you deal with it but i think we are looking at basically the next 6 12 18 months as being extremely critical where global cooperation is going to be also very important So this is a very important question. In a country with a federal structure like India, there are multiple variations of treatment protocols, including use of ivermectin, monoclonal antibodies, steroids and plasma. What is a prescribed protocol that governments can adopt? So what we've tried to do at the WHO is to have what we call the living guidelines, which are evidence-based and they are updated um regularly whenever there is a change in the available evidence so based 
on that, we have made recommendations of, on a number of drugs. As you know, last year, there was a lot of interest in repurposed drugs like hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, ritonavir. We looked at interferon beta. We looked at uh, remdesivir. And, and these were all tested in the solidarity trial, which was a, the second largest trial in the world. And then there were other trials like the recovery trial, which were also looking at drugs like steroids, dexamethasone, and a number of other drugs, hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, ritonavir. They've looked at um, colchicine, at aspirin, at uh, monoclonal antibodies. And based on these trials, we update our guidance. As I said, it's a it's done by a group called the Guidelines Development Group, which is an independent group of experts that gets the evidence reviewed and then bases their recommendations on whether the drug is efficacious in terms of reducing mortality or reducing the duration of hospitalization or reducing the severity of illness. Is it safe? Um, and then they also look, look at things like patient preferences, they look at, look at the equity aspects. Uh, so there is all of that analysis done. And based on that, so far we have only one drug that has a big impact on mortality and that is steroids or dexamethasone. But again, important to note that it only has an impact when it is given to people who are in hospital receiving oxygen. So it is given at the stage of the disease where there is inflammation, which is preventing the oxygen from flowing across, you know, in the lung. And it's given to reduce that inflammation. So it's important to understand that this viral infection, COVID-19, has phases. The first phase is when the virus is replicating. Most people may, may have mild symptoms. This is the first week of the disease. At this stage, the only thing that could have an effect are some of the monoclonal antibodies that are now under development and some of the antiviral drugs, which are also in development for which we still don't have the phase three results, but they look promising. Monoclonal antibodies also look promising. Of course, there's a different issue with, with the cost and access to those, but they, they are showing some promise in early treatment in the first week because that's when you want something to act against the virus. In the second phase of the disease, which is usually starts after seven days or after 10 days, is when in some people, the inflammatory response starts attacking the body's cells and you start getting also the coagulation problems. You get uh, clots occurring in the lungs and in other organs. This is when steroids are helpful and also some immunomodulatory drugs like the anti-IL-6 inhibitors and also drugs which are to prevent uh, coagulation like heparin. And then you have the later phase, which is the long COVID or the post-COVID syndrome, which occurs in a certain proportion of people, you know, about 10% or so, where symptoms last for many weeks or months. And at that time, there is, we are still, there's still research going on as to what treatments are effective. So I think it's important for people to understand that the wrong drug given at the wrong time can actually have more bad effects than good. And so many of the drugs commonly being used now, like doxycycline, azithromycin, and ivermectin, 
have not been shown to have any effect. In fact, WHO has provided a recommendation against the use of ivermectin except in clinical trials and also against the use of remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, etc. So uh, what is needed, I think, uh, in countries is to, uh, is to develop guidelines, national treatment guidelines that are evidence-based and that can be frequently updated and also that are relevant to the context in which they have to be used in the country. You know? So the WHO makes guidelines for the whole world, but then countries can adapt and adopt them and implement them depending on um, also things like the cost and benefit of various interventions. So that will be important to have so that then states can again use those. So ideally, this should be done at the national level so that every state does not have to do their own treatment guidelines. In recent days, there has been a bit of excitement about showing a plateauing of active cases in India. Is this because large states like Maharashtra uh, began the epidemic early? Um, your thoughts on this, please. Well, it's encouraging to see that the numbers are not going up uh, further and that they're plateauing. And as you say, it's because of certain states, large states like Maharashtra showing an impact in reducing uh, through the actions that they've taken. Now, I would be very cautious because India is a huge country and there are still many parts of the country which have not yet experienced the peak. They're still going up. And therefore, one could end up with a very long plateau at a very high level of cases. This happened in the United States. It happened in Brazil. So it is very feasible in large countries that you could achieve a plateau because of some states actually going down while other states are still going up. The, the other thing is that the testing is still inadequate in a large number of states. And when you see test positivity rates of 30, 40, 50%, clearly we are not testing enough. And so the absolute numbers actually don't mean anything when they are taken just by themselves. So the numbers have to be taken in the context of how much testing is done and what is the test positivity rate. Right. What is that the national is test positivity rate now? It's still around 20%. 20, yeah, around that. Uh, around that. Yeah, so it's very high, very high. Yeah. Dr. Saumya, do you think it is even possible to calculate the exact number of people who are dying of COVID in a country? If we are undercounting, will the real number be a guesstimate at best? I think uh, cases and deaths are definitely being undercounted. There is no doubt about that. And that was true in all countries. So there are a couple of ways of going about trying to establish the true number of infections and deaths and long COVID. And the methodology for each will be different. For Infections, I think what ICMR has been doing in terms of the zero surveys is a good surrogate to tell you what percentage of the population has been exposed. And from the data that we have so far, we know that the percentage of the population that was exposed by January of 21 was about 20, 21% of the adult population and a similar proportion of uh, children. So that tells you the 
amount of underreporting in case in, in, uh, in terms of the infections. You can calculate it. For excess mortality, one needs to go and look at death records, which take time to get updated. But this can be done in countries like South Africa and Mexico have actually come up with a figure of excess mortality. So let's say, you know, we have two and a half um, lakh deaths reported due to COVID so far uh, over the last year and a half. One could go back and look over the last several years at the annual incidence of deaths. And usually year to year, that figure doesn't change very much. But then you can look at 2020 or you can look up to you know, March 2021 to see what's the pattern. Um, and if you see an increase in deaths in 2020, above that, which has been reported in 2019, 18, 17, 16, then you can attribute those excess deaths due to COVID. Not all those people may have died of COVID, by the way, because many people would have died of other diseases for which they could not access care during that time. But it does give you an idea of the excess mortality and a large proportion of that, you know, could be COVID. And there could be other ways of, you know, doing verbal autopsies and things like that, where you can actually find out, try to find out the cause of death. In terms of long COVID, I think one needs long-term cohort studies. Globally now, there is, you know, much more uh, importance being paid to, to long COVID. It's clear that people who have mild symptoms or are asymptomatic can also have long COVID, not just people who are very ill. It's clear that children can also come in with long COVID symptoms. So about 10% of people who recover on average may have some one or more symptoms of long COVID. So it's really important to set up those cohorts now to follow them to see in India what are the manifestations of long COVID because we'll have to be prepared to uh, tackle those. Right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Soumya. That's uh, my bunch of questions. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.